Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest has what he calls his dream job. He travels Australia and indeed sometimes he travels the world, spreading the word on Australia's red meat industry. He explains, he educates and above all he cooks. He is the corporate chef for Meat and Livestock Australia, Sam Burke. Welcome, you're on The Grill. Hi Kerry. How are you? I'm oh, well, thank you, mate. Now, Sam, first question, or indeed a couple of questions. Are you in charge of the barbecue at home, and how do you personally prefer your steak? It's become quite of a hobby. Um, I've got 15 barbecues in the backyard. 15? I, I beg your pardon? One. 15, yeah, 15 barbecues? Yeah, a bit of an obsession, mate, and I kind of rotate through them week after week, so that's my ultimate relaxation. You must uh, cook <laughs> red meat over barbecue. I must say, uh, I'm sorry, just astounded that you have 15 barbecues. I think you're running a commercial business in the backyard there. But. Yeah, well, well, it's a passion. And uh, the answer to your second question, I love a steak uh, medium rare to medium, depending on the cut. That's, uh, that's pretty common. Some prefer their steak blue, while others demand well done, to the point where the steak is almost burnt, in fact, the well done. What does overcooking actually do to the taste of a steak? Depends on what cut, really. Every consumer likes their steak uh, different, and, and we're not against that as long as they keep eating red meat. But I guess, you know, when you overcook it, for me, that dry mouthfeel, and, and you have to kind of put some sauce on it to save it, you know, where I think if you give it, you cook it to medium rare or medium or even rare in some instances, you can really tr- taste the juiciness of that steak, uh, those natural juices, and that adds to the element of a satisfactory piece of, of Australian beef or lamb. And uh, and blue, Sam, I have friends who demand extremely rare. Is that getting the best out of the steak? It's personal preference, Kerry. I guess uh, I was speaking to a journalist in the ABC last week that was telling me that they they love their steak blue. So for me, as long as they're eating Australian red meat, I'm pretty happy you can have it any preference you like, you know, but as long as they're consuming the product and and they're having a wonderful experience with it. Well, that's a big green kick for me. Yeah, before we leave the barbecue, any tips on how to best cook sausages, which are just as much a part of the regular everyday barbecue don't steak? Brick them. Don't, don't brick don't. the sausages. Uh, no, just leave them, uh, you, you know, um, a medium heat and, and keep on turning them. And um, whatever you do, don't prick them because you need those natural juices inside those sausages to get it to get a wonderful end product. Okay, fair enough. To good advice, it seems. Um, Sam, I know you think you have the best job in the world, but your start in the cooking business was very basic. You had that first bulk cooking experience at Macca's. Is that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct, Kerry. Uh, 1990, Parramatta Road, opposite the old uh, Concord Oval where the rugby used to play. There used to be a McDonald's there next to the bus depot in Sydney, and we used to get hammered before those rugby matches, and 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 that's where I first learnt how to flip a trusted Big Mac quarter pounder or a McFeast. You know, that's where my love for Aussie beef began. Wow, cooking in Maccas is a lot about systems and teamwork. Does did that leave any impression? My word, they taught us. You know, there's a famous saying at McDonald's, and I think it's still used today: is clean as you go, and also you know, good preparation skills and 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 good systems and uh, food safety, hygiene, and how to work under a high-pressure environment. So they're all the, the groomings that chefs use right up into some of the Michelin-star restaurants around the world. So uh, cooking in Macca's, that 
took you to an interesting beef. Where to after Maccas? Yeah, so after Maccas, um, well, you know, I got to a certain age, and I think I might have been a bit too expensive for the for the roster. So um, another opportunity came up with the supermarket chain. I don't know if you remember Franklin's, but uh, they started a new era of supermarkets in the early nineties called Big Fresh, and it was kind of like the IKEA of supermarkets. So you, you went on this guided uh, tour around the market with all these figurines where you could press a button and have cows mooing at you and fish fishes jumping out of the water. So it was like a shopping adventure. And I worked in the butchery there after school and during my apprenticeship on the weekend, uh, just cleaning up after the butchers, serving meat. And, uh, you know, that's when I began my chef apprenticeship. And on the weekend, uh, the butchers would go home at 3 o'clock on a Saturday and I'd stick around and bone out legs of lamb for the customers and trim up steak uh, whilst I was doing my culinary apprenticeship for a bit of a side hustle on the weekend. So <laughs> that grew my love more for the product, so to speak, you know, yeah, on, a, on a butchery sense as well as a culinary sense. Yeah, certainly. It sounds as if you learnt a lot there. And then you moved on to Spotless, which uh, has flown under the radar a bit. But this is or was a substantial catering organisation. What was your job there? Yeah, so I started off as a first-year apprentice whilst I was working at, at, at Franklin's and then worked my way up the ranks and worked for 20 years exactly. And at the end, I ended up being the food development manager or, if you like, executive chef for the Alliance Catering business, which was a subsidiary of Spotless. And we had 185 sites nationally around the country and we did everything from top boardrooms for the likes of Commonwealth Bank and ANZ and Ernst Young, right to uh, high-profile boarding schools, to sporting stadiums, to mining camps, to oil refineries. So we had a little bit of a taste on all different aspects of commercial cookery, so it made us very versatile. One day you could be cooking for 500 refiners, and the next week you were serving the board of the Commonwealth Bank. So it taught us to be uh, quite applicable in many facets of commercial cookery. What did you learn about bulk cooking for substantial, uh, say, numbers in isolated mining camps? Yeah, so we learned how to use all different types of commercial cookery equipment. So what they call is brat pans, and we'd do up to 100 kilo of curries and braises, big roasting mills in, in combi ovens where we'd like, you know, there'd be 20 tray ovens and we'd line them up uh, with, with red meat or, or the other roast of the day. It taught us how to cook, how to taste, how to season how to um, bring all those foods up harmoniously, so to get the broccoli out at the one time, to get the meat at the one time, to get the, the dessert up after, so it was all harmoniously and tasted good, so it taught us a good methodology of cooking, and it, it taught us how to not be wasteful, you know, uh, because when you're cooking for big amounts, it's easy if you don't get it right to have a lot of waste, and waste is money in commercial cookery. So, you know, we, we, we learned how to be uh, quite business sufficient as well as giving a good end experience to the consumer. So then, Sam, you've moved on to join MLA. I've called you MLA's corporate chef, but what's your official job description or mission statement? Yeah, so, so Kerry got the, got the gold watch from Spotless, handed back the company car and took on the adventure of, 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 of MLA. That's correct, you know, and, and that was kind of a big highlight for me because at the time when I was working at Spotless, we did a lot of work with MLA. Uh, across our business. So that's what kind of drew me to that passion to join that organisation. And my role started off as a product development chef that's evolved to a business development manager and corporate chef for both the domestic and global markets for the business. So 
there's a few names in, in that title, but let's just call it corporate chef for, uh, for meat and livestock Australia. So in an average month, um, what would that entail? Where might you go and what might you be doing? So the wonderful thing about it is just the diversity. So my key KPI was 10 users in big food service establishments to grow demand and maintain current um, volume of Australian red meat on menus. So what we do is we immerse ourselves in those businesses, learn about their business challenges, their staff capability, their cost of goods, supply, the cuts they procure from, where do they get their meat from, and then uh, the equipment they use. And then we reverse engineer solutions where we think that red meat uh, will work well in their business and then guide them to success. And at the end of it, we ask for a little bit of a, a report, if you like, which shows us how, how, how we've worked with them and then report those uh, winnings back to the levy payers, you know, through our feedback magazine and our MLA updates and et cetera. So, you know, one, one day we could be working with a aged care facility, giving dignity back to those wonderful people and those residents in those establishments because we know, you know, back, Back in the baby boomers, you know, red meat was eaten Monday to Friday and, and you had your roast chook on a Sunday, right? So they love red meat. And then next minute we could be uh, on a cruise line out in the middle of the sea working with butchers underneath the vessel, <laughs> underneath the water, uh, showing them best MSA cut for cook methods. And then we could be working on a new uh, burger with a big QSR chain and then out of the mine and, and you know, so the versatility of uh, of the role and working in all those different aspects of food service or horica, we like to call it, is amazing. You know, you're never doing the same thing all the time and, and you're learning more about your product too and how it fits in those establishments. Time for a break from uh, On The Grill. Back in a moment after this quick message from our sponsor. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. Welcome back. We're with Sam Burke. He's the corporate chef for Meat and Livestock Australia. You've had a journey so far, Sam. You joined MLA and not long after, there's the most prolonged drought that I can remember. Then there's COVID and we'll talk more about that later. But then there's the recovery. And all along, I want to raise this right now, the, this concerted anti-meat campaign and a fake meat cam- campaign as well. Let's go there now. Is the, is the anti-meat brigade making any impression, do you think? Protein's never been in more demand. I'm not saying that it's not a competitor, but I'm thinking there's a lot of symbol bashing there. And at the end of the day, every food service establishment I'm talking to is wanting help with red meat on menu, right? And uh, and, and putting that protein front and centre as we come out of COVID, you know what I mean? So I believe there is still amazing passion and, and love for our product. We're a red meat-consuming nation. And, you know, we, we've got to be aware of our competitors. Let, let me let me tell you that. But it's by the same token, we are doing some great work with some very big food service operators and nothing's slowing down. So I can say with my hand on my heart, you know, you know, it's good times for producers and uh, we're out there making the most of it, making sure that the end user has confidence with the product making sure, because it's a quality product, right? We wanted to have success with it, 
uh, so it can reappear on menu time and time again. So um, I'm just focused on making sure that, you know, red meat holds its place and looking for more growth opportunities with total carcass utilisation. So that's outside the 8% of the loin cut, yes. looking at the whole carcass. We'll go, we'll go there in a moment. But I noticed during COVID and on several occasions uh, since, especially during panic buying, that the plant-based protein appears to be staying plentiful in the shelves, while uh, stocks of steak, sausages, mince, etc., they they were all sold out, but there was still plenty of meat uh, or fake meat protein left on the shelves. I think you've answered my question there, Kerry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, I, 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 do, I do the shopping for my wife every Sunday and I see the same. And and that's just a credit, right, to the wonderful work our producers do, the story that's being told now. Like, you know, Kerry, you know this yourself. You're very clued in on the industry and I've been watching you for a long time, you know, in the past 10 years, the story of red meat has just evolved so much. You know, the brands that are underpinning, with MSA underpinning them, the, the story, the provenance, blockchain technology now getting released. You know, people will be able to scan uh, tickets on, on red meat and see where their products come from. And this adds value to the product, you know. So like, like in the past, we've seen fine dining restaurants with the waiter going out talking about the regions of wine. We're now seeing the same with red meat on menus. This cut comes from here. It was raised on this. It has this wonderful eating quality. Please enjoy, right? So that has really helped, I think, the quality, not only in fine dining, but the, across the whole of food service. Look at McDonald's, for example, with the big Angus, you know, how they called that breed out uh, in the past 10 years. And, yes. and uh, you know, we're seeing uh, food service not only calling out breeds but dry aged, wet aged, um, where the provenance where it comes from, uh, the way it was produced, you know, the, the story is there and it's being shared and ensuring that the consumer has a quality product at the end of the day which is getting appreciated. Sam, what, what's the average uh, Australian household now having for Sunday lunch? In my day, of course, it was always a roast, it was roast beef, roast lamb, roast mutton, or uh, once or twice a year, mm. chicken maybe, and certainly more chicken these days. But what's the average Australian household have for Sunday lunch? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of barbecuing at the moment. We're seeing all these wonderful cultures doing share plate food. So, you know, like having a, a slow-pulled, shoulder of lamb and then some lovely tortillas and a pick of the gallo and creating your own taco around the table. Um, we're seeing, you know, those big roasting cuts and beautiful composite salads and uh, when I mean roasting cuts like the, the tomahawk steak, uh, you, can, you can roast that in the oven or you can grill that over a barbecue and you can put that in the middle there and have all these little composites like mac cheese, pureed spinach, um, you, you know, uh, uh, little roast potatoes, you know, wonderful, wonderful salads, and and then and then not eating big amounts like a three hundred and fifty gram steak, you know, or a big big cuts of roast, but smaller amounts with sides, you know, making sure that red meat is is enjoyed on menu, and we're not having that big Sunday afternoon sleep after lunch as much yeah. now, you know. So uh, smaller smaller amounts, wonderful sides, and quality protein, you know. So. Uh, that's what we're seeing a lot, you know, with the barbecues. And this comes from all the different, you know, Australia's a young country. We, we've got our traditional people of the land, which is, you know, Indigenous people have done wonderful things for food and we're tapping into what they're doing. And then, uh, you know, all the all the cultures that have come over the past 200 years are bringing all their spins on different food now, you know, and, and not only from just the European settlement, you know, from the Middle East, from Asia. And, and what we see in Australia is that we're great adopters of these trends and giving things a go. 
and then flowing it through, you know, from restaurants to retail outlets and then enjoyment at the end of the day for the consumer on that weekend. So we're, we're, we're toying with a lot of things. Kerry is my answer to that. Sam, how about the way we cook? Am I correct in surmising that we cook a lot healthier these days than, say, 20 or 30 years back? And the biggest change, Sam, that I've seen, we cook a lot slower. Is slow cooking the biggest and most positive influence on the uh, red meat industry for many, many years? I'm really glad you mentioned that, Kerry, because what we're seeing, you you heard me just before talk about total carcass utilisation, right? So we have a look at all those wonderful braising cuts. Look at the the beef carcass, for example, like your chuck, like your brisket. We're seeing the the evolve of those slow cookers where where mum can put your celery, carrot, onions, some tomato passata, uh, a bit of beef stock in, uh, a touch of red wine, and then goes the cut. And then, you know, off to work, everyone goes, and that slow cooker is just gently cooking that protein. Because it's cooking it slower, you're retaining all that moisture than when, when you would, would cook it at 180 in an oven. So you're getting more yield. You're coming home. You've got this beautiful smell fermenting the kitchen. The beef is done. And then you get on your little, your little side. So it could be some nice flatbread, a wonderful salad, and then it could be a creamy polenta. And then all of a sudden you've got this gourmet meal that's nice and gelatinous and all the preps have been happening whilst you've been at work and then you just finish it off with a few different sides and have a wonderful meal occasion and we're seeing the consumer adopt these trends and also with air fryers as well, you know, yes, looking yeah. at healthy ways to cook. Uh, oh, indeed, air fryers. Um, they're, they're a revolution, yeah. aren't they? Air fr- well, well, we did a campaign where we are teaching people how to cook Chuck's in air fryers uh, back our retail team we're doing we're doing something there right. and, and giving a few consumer tips as well and then now there's all there's these new Tupperware containers right where you can actually yeah. cook and grill a steak in a microwave who would ever thought Terry time for a break from uh, on the grill we're with Sam Burke corporate chef for meat and livestock Australia established since 1988 Kelly's finance group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. We're with Sam Burke. He's the Corporate Chef for Meat and Livestock Australia. I want to get back to the carcass again now. Carcass size, uh, every year the carcasses seem to be getting bigger and bigger. So are they getting perhaps too big? Is the, the T-bone, for example, is that getting too large for the average plate to handle? Yeah, well, well, well it depends. You know, um, restaurants like smaller carcasses because then they can cut a thicker cut uh, to meet their, their grammage and then it's easier to cook a thicker cut than a thin cut. But we've also seen on the flip side, and I'm talking about food service here, you know, uh, we're talking about those mining camps. If they've got bigger cuts, they can cook those cuts overnight in those big combi ovens that I was talking to you about. And 
you got more yield and 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 it's easier to carve when you've got a when you've got a bigger cut of meat than a smaller cut of meat for big copious amounts of people if you if you're serving a big chase whether it be a yeah. boarding school or a mine or institutional there so it really depends on the on the end purpose but you know what we find is that the the hotel groups who do a lot of steaks prefer smaller carcasses so they can get a thicker cut. Uh, you know, so a 400 gram off a bigger carcass, it'd be a thinner cut T-bone than what it would be of a smaller carcass. And the thicker the, the steak is, the easier it is to get that degree doneness for the end consumer when they're grilling steaks yes. at a Sam, are busy we, time. That Sam, are we doing enough seam cutting? Are we doing enough to spread the word about the importance and the... Uh, and the profitability of seam cutting? It's good that you ask that. So we've got our two corporate butchers. We've got uh, Kelly Payne, who, who, who I know you know, um, is in our MSA team. And he's on the road with us all the time when we do these big end food service presentations to chefs showing how to seam cut and those different foreign cuts that chefs didn't know about and the right cut-by-cook method under pinning MSA and then we've got Doug Piper who's the same who leads up our Australian Butchers Guild program which teaches uh, butchers you, you, you know you know, getting back to those classic butchery techniques like how to seam a rump uh, with the Ross Biff and the cap off and the eye side centre and the pillow steak and how to get more over the counter for the butcher by value adding those cuts rather than cook, cutting a full face rump which we're traditionally used to you know so so we're out there teaching chefs and, and, and retail to maximise value of the carcass and then return more value to the producer. Is uh, If somebody said to me 20 years ago, Sam, that, Kerry, you are going to love this slow-cooked brisket, I would suggest that they had their head examined. But I have to say some of the most delicious meat I've had recently is this slow-cooked brisket. Is the slow-cooking revolution still bubbling? Is there more to come or has it peaked? No, I think there's more to come. And, and I think, how good is it, right? I had a podcast last night with the, the Rib Barbecue Association, which was a, a barbecue group. And what I love what these guys are doing and girls, they're looking at these non-prime cuts, what we call masterpieces at MLA, and they're showing the consumer how to cook it and have success with it. And how good is that when you're a producer? Because all of a sudden, all these non-prime cuts like your briskets are selling you know, you, you recall we used to corn and roll briskets back in the day, right? You, you know, how good is it if we've got these barbecue enthusiasts who, who just don't buy one kilo of meat, they're buying 12 kilo briskets on the weekend, right? Eight to 12 kilo briskets, you know, and, and slow cooking them off, right? And how good is it to have these guys teaching consumers as well as us how to cook these nine non-prime cuts and have success with it? Because totally, if, if, if more cuts become more higher in demand, well, that's a better return to Farmgate, right? So I, I don't see it going anywhere. And, and I actually joined the joined those uh, barbecue enthusiasts. That's exactly what I do on the weekend, mate. So I'm, I'm toying with these cuts in the backyard, doing the snake method and all these different uh, ways of cooking these slow-cooked proteins. And you know what I love about it, Kerry, at the end of the day? At this stage of my career, I don't even have to eat it. I carve <laughs> that brisket. Right, just to carve that brisket and see the smile on people's faces when yes. you when when you're given that end result, what you just talked about is the best reward. I've, I've talked to you about um, my daughter; she turned eighteen, and you know there was a bit of a word. Oh, my dad's worked for MLA, so a few of the kids were following on 
me on social, then we ended up getting 200 kids in the backyard, right? And I slow cooked two briskets. Yeah, it was madness. It was madness. Well, you do have 15 barbecues. You should have been able to cook. Yeah, 100%. So I slow cooked two briskets, right? And uh, there was quite a popular chicken um, brand that's around the area. And I thought I'd, I'd get a few of these two just to give a bit of variety. And, you know, homage to our beef producers, I was eating chicken for three days because no one touched it, but absolutely smashed the brisket. There was not a, not, not a gram left. I had to serve it to them. And then at the end of the day, uh, for the next daughter's birthday, which came after it, we actually sang happy birthday when the brisket came out rather than celebrating it with the cake. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's a great story, Stan. It, it, it's a great so story. So it overtook the cake popularity of the party, right? right you know? yeah. Now, getting back to uh, cuts that we never used to use, or we sometimes um, – I it started almost with lamb shanks and beef shanks, which uh, – I, when we were kids, we'd throw them to the dog. Or, uh, but now, but then they started to slow cook them, and now you get a, you're paying eighteen dollars for a, a, a lamb shank, aren't you? Look, look, I remember lamb shanks too when I was back work, working back at the butcher shop in the nineties. You know, we'd put them in the dog bones and breasts as well, the ribs, right? The, the ribs as well. Now, now they're getting the the lamb ribs, and, and and you know they're cooking them well, and they're pressing them, and they're and they're roasting them at the end with a wonderful sauce, or finishing them on the barbecue, and we're seeing lamb ribs at a, a, a at a premium price on menu, and why not? It's a wonderful product, right? So that all comes back to you know you know the industry going out there and and working on different recipes and working on different methods and helping chefs consumers arrest those challenges of red meat on menu and give them success with these. I don't like to call them secondary cuts. I like to call them masterpieces or non-prime cuts, you know. We've definitely seen much more use of the carcass, and that all ties into sustainability too, right? So we're not wasting anything. And more return for the uh, producer, of course, which is crucial. Oh, my word. That's our job. That's our job. That's who pays us. Yeah, that's correct. You know, so, you you know, know, think, for example, there's a new cut. Oh, it's not sent around. We all know the shin, but now we're seeing people calling it the forehammer. The where they get the beef shin, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they French the top of the shank, yeah, and then they slow cook the shin, and it looks like a big hammer that fall, you know, the Marvel yes. character comes out with, yes. and then they, and then and then the meat just falls off the bone, and then they they serve that with some wonderful sides, and and you know how good is that, you know, and uh, you, you know the knuckle, the flank, the skirt, the tenderloin, as we know, has always been popular, but you know, straight underneath it is another beautiful cut called the hanger, which you cook. Fast and and then slice it across the grain, and 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 it's wonderful. So you, you know you know what, we should be celebrating the whole of the carcass. The production system underpinned by MSA has improved the quality to be right up there. I believe with the best in the world. Just a couple of questions left, Sam. Uh, there's a plethora. Yep. I know this is not your favourite subject, but you're going to get it anyway. There's a plethora of cooking shows yep. on the box. Do you watch any? Oh, mate, my wife loves them. You can see her watching Fast Ed every Friday night. She's a chef too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Kerry, I don't like watch TV, mate. I, I run pretty hard, and then the only thing I watch is the news, and then I do my exercise, and then I pretty much go to bed. But I find sometimes watching these cooking shows and all the pressure, and uh, it kind of rubs off on yourself. You start to doubt yourself when you watch these things. So. Look, I do watch a lot of stuff online, you know, to get inspiration yes. from. But I'm not the, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not one of those guys that'll t- tune into those 
those uh, reality TV shows and yeah. see people burn things and this and that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm all about spruiking positivity. Yeah, with it cooking, seems to me there are know? many that, many of these shows, uh, Sam, are more about um, entertainment than improving or challenging a, a cooking style. Do you have a favourite chef there? Oh, I got I got plenty of favourite chefs. You know, um, any big I names? Guess, oh, look, over over the years, you, you know, I, I used to like Gordon Ramsay when I was a young fella. Marco Pierre White's been Fantastic! I love I love uh, Shane Delia. He he does a lot of stuff with Middle Eastern cuisine with uh, Australian lamb. You know I like I like his his flavors. What he does. You know there's another chef called Adam Moore in Sydney. He's he's quite uh, inspirational. So you, you know you know there's several chefs all around the country. A uh, Glenn Flood, another guy uh, who used to be on on uh, Master Chef, and another lady called Julie Ballard, who's who's a big fan of mine as well. Yeah, so. There's a few chefs out there that I, that I follow, and, and Julie works for MLA, by the way, too, so there's a shameless plug there. Sam Burke, uh, corporate chef for Meat and Livestock Australia. Telling the world how to cook red meat, your enthusiasm is palpable and unbridled. Well done. A great pleasure to hear your story. Many thanks for being on the grill for Beef Central. Gary, we love what you guys do at Beef Central. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'd, I'd love to come back any time. You know, I, I, I'll just finish by saying... The show first started, uh, I had the family in the car coming from the Gold Coast, Coffs Harbour, and I, I discovered your show by accident through socials, and they heard 10 episodes back-to-back, uh, -back, you know, and uh, at the end, they loved it too, mate. So keep up the good fight. You've done a great job. <laughs> thank you very much, Sam. <laughs> Thanks very much. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenko Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.